Today's message is on a topic that I believe is so appropriate for us today. Um, and the title of it is, Even Godly People Suffer Doubt from Time to Time. Even godly people suffer doubt from time to time. All of us in our Christian walk are going to encounter periods of doubt. Some of us will even experience periods of depression. And so it's so appropriate to see how God speaks to this issue, even as it applies to a great man, a godly man like Elijah. Now, nobody would think, after what we've studied about Elijah, that he would ever be filled with doubt. How could he be filled with doubt? How could this man who was raised up and, and indicts the king of Israel and stops the rain from falling for three and a half years, and then is brought to the ravine at Cherith and protected during that period of time, and then brought to that widow, and that widow gets oil and flour during the entire period of time because God gave it to her as a miracle. And then Elijah raises her son from the dead, from the very dead. And how could this man be filled with doubt? And there he was as he brought down fire. For destroying the 800 prophets of Baal, the 850 prophets of Baal and Asheroth. How could this man suffer doubt? Well, the answer is he's human. He's human. And as great a man as he was, and as powerful as he was as a man of God, he still is cloaked with flesh. And this is the message that God would have you hear today. Uh, and so even such a great man as Elijah, this great hero, is still a man and still suffers from the same issues that we all do. Now, the Bible is a wonderful book because it doesn't paint its heroes in a fairy tale. It shows us his heroes in their actual human form, with their warts, with their shortcomings. Uh, and so scripture is full of, of men and women who have suffered from some period of time from doubt and even depression. For example, Moses, can you get anybody greater than Moses? Moses once became so blue and depressed and discouraged that he asked God to take his life. Jonah after the great revival in Nineveh, in which he was used powerfully in the entire city, came to salvation, he did the same thing. And the great apostle Paul despaired even of life, and that's a quote from Scripture, at a certain point in his ministry. And you see that in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. And there it says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under so great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. 
So it is not surprising at this point in Elijah's life that he has hit rock bottom, right at this great moment of victory, right at this moment where fire is called down from heaven, where the sacrifice is eaten up by the flames, uh, and 850 false prophets, evil prophets are destroyed, almost against insurmountable doubt uh, and odds, Elijah now suffers depression. Uh, and so the first point I want to make is that now after a great victory, he dropped into the throes of discouragement. God does not describe or does not ignore our weaknesses and failings. And let me say that to you. God does not ignore your weaknesses and failings. And so as we study the life of Elijah, we need to focus on these four personalities that are interwoven here at this point. That is Ahab, the king, Jezebel, the queen, uh, Elijah, and sovereign God. Now, Ahab had informed Jezebel that Elijah had destroyed the prophets. He delivered the message and how he had killed the prophets. And now Ahab was really depressed and discouraged himself. He fell under great pressure uh, when all this happened. And so he relied on his wife, the evil Jezebel. He relied on his wife to give him strength, false strength, uh, in, in order to rule. And so she was an evil woman. And so she quickly took over. And you see this passage in 1 Kings 19, chapter 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Imagine that. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. You will not escape me. This was classic intimidation. Uh, in effect, she was warning Elijah that she intended to take his life. Um, and this was no idle threat. She was queen in Israel. She ruled Israel. She had all of those assets available to her in order to do that. And so take a step back and think about this. Think about where this threat is coming. Here, here Elijah has faced down the king before. He has issued the prophecy of three and a half years, no rain. He is protected by God. He is fed by ravens. He is taken to the widow. He takes care of her. Uh, he raises her son from the death. Fire is called down from heaven. Uh, and, and surely this man would never fall for the intimidation of this human being, this carnal, evil human being. Well, guess what? He did get intimidated. He did fall in fear. So there's a lesson there. That means that even when God uses you, when you've been with God, when you've walked with God, you can still fall out of the will of God. And so we're going to focus on this because I think there are important lessons for us to learn. In 1 Kings 19, uh, verses 3 to 4, we read as follows. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah could run no farther. Beersheba was the farthest point you could run and still be 
in Israel. He then fell into exhaustion under this tree. And so why did this happen? Why did this great man of God suddenly uh, succumb to intimidation, suddenly fall into depression and doubt? And so the question is, what can we learn from this in his life? Well, I think there's some important lessons here. Why did he run away from his long-standing priority of serving God uh, and hide in fear under the shadow of that tree? How did that happen? What caused him to do that? Well, first, he was not thinking clearly. He was not thinking clearly. He failed to consider the real source of the threat. And this is important because you've walked with God. Your life has been blessed by God. God has protected you your entire life. You know that. You know God has done that. You know God has blessed you. You know God is with you. And so here he was. He had forgotten where he had been, where he had walked, and instead focused on the threat instead of focusing on the blessings. Uh, and this is important. The threat did not come from God. It came from this evil, carnal woman. She had no authority over God, and he ought to know that. And we ought to know that, even as we face these issues from time to time. Uh, what he should have said is, God is in control, not Jezebel. And I want to say that to each and every one of you today, as you face doubt and issues in your life. God is in control of your life. In control of your life. You've given him your life. You've pledged your life to him. He holds you in the palm of his hand. What makes you think that after you know he saved you and guaranteed life in eternity with him, that he would suddenly walk away, that he would fail you? It's not possible. It's not possible. But he had forgotten that. And so what we have to remember is God is in control. I will trust him every day of my life, uh, as I have always done. And instead of being discouraged, I will pray that God will give me strength and lift me up and encourage me. And that's what you need to do. And so in these dark moments of your life, you need to pray. You need to speak to God and ask God to encourage you, to lift me up, to make me remember where I've been, Lord, to remember the paths that you were with me in so many ways. But instead of praying for strength, he caved in and ran for cover. Wow. Well, if Elijah could do that, how much more is that a possibility even for us? Forgetting to pray for strength, forgetting to pray for where we've been. Forgetting to, for, for, forgetting to understand that God had protected us. And what happens? We run from cover. We run in depression. We run in fear. We forget all that God has done for us. Well, secondly, trying to understand what happens here, is that Elijah separated himself from strengthening relationships. And I want to emphasize this because this is important for us. You see that when Elijah was there with, with his uh, servant helper, he separated himself from that man and left him and went an additional day into the wilderness. Uh, and so discouraged people are generally lonely people. And so when you suffer discouragement or depression, that's not the time to go into a cave. It's not a time to separate yourself, but instead, it's a time to affiliate yourself with the people of God. This is your family. This 
is your spiritual family. In many ways, this family here is more important than your physical family. Because you see, you couldn't choose your physical family. You were born into it, for better or worse, based on a gene pool. But I'm here to tell you that God gave you this family. And if God gave you this family, there's a reason for it. We are responsible to pray for you, to encourage you, to affirm you. And so when you feel doubtful, when you're suffering from depression, you need to be with us, together with us, because together we will pray together and, and ask God to intervene in your life. This is how God wants us to live, all right? We are not to get alone, ever. We are to get together. That's the essence of how God wants us to live. This is an important life lesson, folks, to understand this. I want to encourage all of you. Third, Elijah was caught in what I will call the backwash of a great victory. And here's what happens. God does some great thing with us and lifts us up. And when that happens, it's easy, you see, to be on the mountaintop. Oh, yes, look what I've done. Look where I've been. Look at the victories that I have. And all of a sudden, you see, it's me. It's me. It's me. But it's not me. It's him. And even the great ones get caught up in the backwash of this victory. And so what happens at the most vulnerable point in our lives, it's often when God has given us a great victory. Because we forget he gave us the victory, and instead we think that it's because of our great talents and giftedness. This is important. These are the moments when we are vulnerable. These are the times when the enemy seeks to destroy us. Uh, the big battle at Carmel was over. The prophets had been destroyed. His now, his emotions and energy begin to slide. He was vulnerable because he's caught in the very backwash of that moment. Fourth, Elijah was physically exhausted and emotionally spent. I want to emphasize this. Physical exhaustion and emotionally spent. So many of us push ourselves so much every day that we get physically exhausted. And as we get physically exhausted, we get mentally exhausted and emotionally exhausted because we face the problems of life, physical problems, mental problems, health problems, financial problems, relationship problems. Do I keep going? This is life. This is what happens when you breathe in this world. And what happens? As you suffer these issues, you will eventually begin to get exhausted. You get physically exhausted, you get mentally exhausted, and you even get spiritually exhausted. And so he had come to the end of his rope, uh, and he was so weakened that he asked God to take him home. Kill me, Lord. Take me home. Uh, and so the lesson here for us, and this is important, that we all have to make time to rest. It's not a sin to take a vacation. It's not a sin to take time off. It's not a sin to rest. You don't have to work 24 hours a day. Even if you're working for God, you need to take time off. This is important because God doesn't want you to be physically exhausted or physically drained. He wants you to be refreshed. And when you are exhausted, this is the very moment when the Satan will seek to attack you. 
uh, and cause depression and doubt in your life, even as such a great man as Elijah. Fifth, Elijah got lost in self-pity. Self-pity. How sad. Self-pity, you see, tends to exaggerate our condition. And it lies to us, you see? It lies to us. Oh, look how bad you are. Look at how desperate this situation is. You're finished. She's going to kill you. I know you did some good things, but that's over. That's finished. That's background. That's history. Now she's going to destroy you, uh, and your life is going to be worthless. Each of us have gone through periods of self-pity, haven't we? We've all suffered. We all suffer. We've talked about the dried-up brook. Many times when the brooks dry up in our lives, where do we go? We self-pity. Oh, God, why did the brook dry up? Instead of recognizing that he has a plan for us in our lives, the danger of self-pity. Uh, and here's where Elijah said, this is the very evidence of self-pity. I am not better than my father's. I'm not better than my father's, God. Kill me. Well, first of all, who, who gave him that standard? Did God tell him you're no better than your father's? Was that an appropriate standard? No, you see. And that's what Satan does. He puts phony standards in your life where suddenly you're using a measuring stick that's not appropriate. No one ever told him that he needed to compare himself to his father's. And we're open to self-pity when we set unrealistic standards, not godly standards. And so we have to remember to let God set the standard for our life. Not other people, not false standards, not even ourselves. Let God set the standard for your life. God is loving and affirming and nurturing in every way, and he is faithful to us. And you're going to see that here in this story. Uh, it is now our faithful God who steps on the scene and will step in the way of evil Jezebel uh, in this unfolding drama. And so look, if you would, to 1 Kings 19, verses 4 to 8, as you see the incredible love of God. And then it says, as to Elijah, then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep in exhaustion. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. By the way, I love that. God, it seems as if God is, is like an ongoing caterer, doesn't it? <laughs> Get up and eat. I, I just love this because, frankly, this reminds me of my mother. Uh, and because I grew up in an Italian home in which whenever we were uh, under the weather, we were blue, we were depressed, Something um, didn't happen that was good in school. Whenever it was, from the earliest age I remember, this is going back to first or second grade, we'd come home and we'd do this, and my mother said, here, eat. Here, eat. And it was like every mouthful of food would be like a palliative. Oh, oh, thank you, God. Of course, that's why I look the way I look. All right? You don't grow up skinny in an Italian house when food is like this, but you see, God understood it. This is what I love about God. He knows the basic human need, food. When you're depressed, when you're down, how God reaches us. And so there he says, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. I'm telling you, God is a tremendous concierge. 
And so what happens? He ate and drank and then lay down again. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. And all I have to say to you is that had to be some meal. All right. To go 40 days and 40 nights, I would say that was divine food in every possible way. And so what's the point here? The point here is that when you're down and out and you reach out to God, the mercy of God pours into your life. You're saved. He hears you. He loves you. And so the mercy of God intervenes here. Uh, and this demonstrates the very mercy of God towards his children. First, God allowed Elijah rest. He allowed him to rest. He allowed him to be refreshed. Notice that there are no words of rebuke. You notice that in this passage? You don't see God saying, you're a loser. You have forgotten where I took you. I protect. You don't see any of the recriminations we would, right? If this was somebody in our family, we would reach out and say, you're a loser. All right, you've forgotten everything good. Instead, God does. What does God do? He feeds him. He refreshes him. All right, uh, he caters this bread and cool water. How gracious of God that he would do this, that he would lift them up in his mercy. And that's a lesson for you. This is what you get when you reach out to God and say, God, help me at this time. Help me in these dark periods of my life. God gave him this rest and refreshment and never rebuked him. In no way, in no way did he recriminate him uh, for where he had been. And then we see uh, in 1 Kings 19 verse 9 that God now communicates directly with Elijah. There it says there, Elijah went into the cave and spent the night. And there the Lord appears to Elijah. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? I love that, don't you? As if God didn't know what you were doing here. You see, that's a question that God asks, not for the answer, but for you to consider. That's the point. What are you doing here, Elijah? I know what you're doing here. Do you realize what you're doing here? Do you realize what this reflects on in terms of our relationship? What are you doing here? God asks this very simple question. And I believe God poses these kinds of questions to us. These kind of rhetorical questions. And so when you have that relationship with God, that personal relationship with God, where he's your friend and your father, you tell him you unburden yourself. Oh, God. You don't know what I've been going through. And look at how Elijah comes back with this great self-pitying response. I love it. Because again, it shows you how much Elijah had this type of relationship with God. 1 Kings 19, verse 10. Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Now, let me ask you a question. He's saying that to God. You don't think that God knew the story of what had been going on in Israel? After all, God called down the fire. 
God gave permission for those prophets of Baal to be destroyed. God was there every step of the way protecting them. But you see, in our self-pitying nature, I'm the only one left. Look at me. I'm out here by myself. What a danger this is. And I think this is something that we all fall, fall to. You're not alone. When you think you're alone, you're not alone. First of all, you're in a church in which every one of these people loves you and supports you and affirms you and will walk with you. And yet you're with the body of Christ and Christ will lift you up. You're not alone. You're never alone. And so here's the thing. And then he says, I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too, as if God didn't know. As if God didn't know. But God did not reply by saying, you're stupid. What's wrong with you? Where have you been? Have you forgotten everything I've done for you? What kind of remarks are these that you're doing? This is blasphemy that you're talking to me. He didn't say anything like that at all. Instead, God told him to get up and walk out of the cave. Get up. Get up and walk out of the cave. In other words, step out into the light. Get out of where you are. Get out of your doubt. Get out of your depression. Get up and walk out into the light because I have something to say to you. And this is important as we understand this, as we walk with Christ. Uh, and so stand before me on the mountain effectively where you will be encouraged. Step out into the light. Forget about Jezebel. I am here for you. And then you see in 1 Kings 19 verses 11 to 12, these great verses, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Can you imagine? The Lord is about to pass by. What a great statement this is. As God reaches out in our very dark days, the Lord is about to step by. And look at how God responds to Elijah. And again, this speaks so powerfully to my life. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the very mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? God speaks with a still, small voice. His presence wasn't in the earthquake or the wind or the fire, but just in that still, small, loving, nurturing affirming voice, the very voice that he speaks to us when we're at these moments of death. And so he draws Elijah out of the cave of self-pity, uh, out of the cave of depression and discouragement. And so once he's out of the cave, God is speaking to him now. God is speaking to his heart. Uh, and he basically says to him here, here in 1 Kings 19, verses 15 to 18, this is what God says. This is the proscription. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. 
That's the first important thing to understand here in this sermon. Go back the way you came. I know you're discouraged. I know you're depressed. I know you're fearful, but I'm with you. I was with you the whole way. And now I want you to go back the way you came. Meaning go back and do what you were doing before. Go back to walking with me. Go back to serving with me. And continues. And go to the desert of Damascus. Go back to work. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphath, from Abel-Malholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel. And Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve... 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. 7,000 still committed to God. And I know that many of you today are discouraged by the news. Many of you are discouraged by what you see in Washington. Many of you are discouraged as you see those people fighting uh, the abortion issue. And you see what those people on the other side would like to do. But I want you to know God's people are strong. When God said 7,000, I mentioned, I believe that there's 100 million or more in this country who have not bowed to evil, who have not bowed to Satan. Uh, and God wants you to know that. Don't be discouraged. You're not alone. And the first step is in this church where you're surrounded. And so point seven here is that God still tells Elijah he still had a job to do. That's one of the important things to understand in these issues of discouragement and depression. Get up out of the cave. Get out of the cave. You have work to do. I've called you. Sure, I know you're going through some sickness, but I'm with you. Yes, I understood your stock portfolio may have taken a hit, but I'm with you. Yes, I understood that some relationships in the family are not what you want them to be, but I am with you. I am with you. I was with you from the beginning. I will be with you through the end. Uh, and so there's a, there's a work to do. God says, get back to work. Because here's the thing we know, that when you work, you're less susceptible to depression. You're less susceptible to discouragement. And you're working for God. You're working for him. Uh, and then, here's the other thing. God gave Elijah a close personal friend, Elisha, who would then travel with him for the rest of his ministry in every way. And God wants you to have these close personal friends. You need to have someone in your life who you can talk to, who can nurture you, who can affirm you, who can pray for you. Yes, God wants you to have that. You need to develop that. That's what we get here in church. God gave him a friend who would care for him and would minister to him as well. And point eight is God has not designed us to live like hermits in a cave. You understand? God doesn't want you to live by yourself, to lock, your, lock yourself up in your home, to be away from the people of God. That's the worst thing that you can do. When things look rough, when you get discouraged, when doubt gets in your life, don't lock yourself up. But come to church. Come and ask us to pray for you and be with us. Be with people that love you. And to look for godly people that can come into your life. Otherwise, we focus always on ourselves. It's always about me, 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 instead of him, him, him. 
Listen, these are lessons that we need to have to give us strength. And so when the Lord gives us rest and refreshment, we become more grateful. Our eyes are clear. We see where, he, where he's been. We remember what he's done for us. Uh, and so point nine is that God does not want us to be shut away in our cave of loneliness and discouragement. He doesn't want you to be by yourself locked up in that cave. Uh, he wants you to think of all the blessings in your life. And this is something we need to do on a regular basis. Reflect. Take out a piece of paper and write down all the blessings in your life. You will be amazed at how much God is pouring into your life. Someone told me that, that they wrote down a, a pad a year ago about what their prayer was, that they, what they had asked God to do, and they'd forgotten about it. And then a year later, they went back and pulled the pad out, and they were astonished. Almost everything in the list had been taken care of. God had addressed it, even when we don't know it. And I say that that's probably pretty uniform for all of us. He is working constantly to address us. And so when he gently speaks into our hearts, when he gently lifts us up, remember that. Yes, I understand that we're, some of us are facing some difficult physical problems, but he's there with you. He's not going to abandon you. Don't be discouraged. Don't let darkness come into your life. Look up and acknowledge the giver, the giver, reflecting more on the giver than the actual blessings themselves. He gave it to you. He walks with you. He is with you. And now I want to tell you the end of the story, like Paul Harvey. And so here's the end of the story. It's pretty powerful. Elijah prophesies to Ahab he will die a horrible death. He says your body will be eaten up by animals. Well, guess what? Ahab's body in the middle of a battle is destroyed, and animals will eat up his body. And then several years later, Jezebel will be on the tower of the palace, and one of her own people will throw her off the palace. Her body will crash on the pavement below, and wild dogs will consume her to such an extent that when they go out to try to bury her an hour later, there was nothing left to bury I want you to see how God's judgment comes through. But what about Elijah? How did God take care of him? How did God affirm him and elevate him? And, and elevate him? Well, the end of the story with Elijah is one of the single most powerful examples in the Bible of the power of God because Elijah is going to be walking down a path with his servant, Elisha, and suddenly, as they look up into the sky, they will see a chariot of fire with horses of fire leave the sky, come down to earth, pick up Elijah in that chariot, and take him directly to heaven. Can I get an amen? amen. In other words, there would be only two people in the history of the Bible who would never suffer physical death. Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah. And some people say that those two guys uh, will be used by the Lord at the end of the story during, during the uh, uh, period when the Antichrist comes back, and there will be the two prophets who will speak for three and a half years and indict uh, the Antichrist. And most likely Elijah will be one of those because he never experienced death 
Uh, and so that becomes an important thing to understand. Look, this is how God writes the story. He's with you. He doesn't forget you. He affirms you. He loves you. Yes, he knows you suffer periods of doubt. That's not a sin. Yes, he knows you suffer periods of depression. That's not a sin. Church, get out of the cave. Get out of the cave and walk with him. Amen? Let's bow our in prayer. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for Elijah. I thank you for affirming again, Lord, that in your love and mercy towards us, that, that you recognize that we have failings, even through doubt and depression. And so, Father, as, as we recognize this, we bow before your throne. We ask you to lift us up, strengthen us, help us to remember that you'll never forget us, and at our weakest moment, to ask you to intervene and to take us out of the cave and to help us to go back to work. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. And now we're going to do our communion. And so if you have the communion cups with you, let's bow in prayer as we take communion. Lord, I thank you so much for all that you've done. But the greatest thing that you've done is to die on the cross for us. And you directed us, Father, at that time to join with you, to join with your life and to celebrate communion often, reflecting of what you did and be mindful of the fact that you will come back. And so, Lord, I ask you that, that you bless us during this communion service, anoint us as we partake in communion and help us to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. There is no greater thing that we can take as Christians than to do communion. That is when we really unite with God, unite with Christ uh, as part of this great ordinance. And so each person now, if you're a Christian, if you accepted Jesus Christ, I want you to take communion. All right? You don't have to be a member of this church. We don't believe really in that kind of membership. We believe in the membership of God himself and Christianity. And so I want to say to you, Take communion. Be mindful of that. And what God says is to examine yourself today. This is a point of self-examination. Uh, and we see this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, where it says there, but a man must examine himself. And so let him eat of this bread and drink of that cup, meaning examine yourself. And when I say examine yourself, I mean pray to God, Father, tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I have to be better. Tell me how to be more loving how to be more forgiving, how to be more like you, Father, in every way. And that's what this is about, being more like Jesus at this very moment. And so let's take a look at the words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat 
and drink judgment on themselves. And so don't be fearful about, about your, your life, but examine yourself at this moment. God wants you to take communion. You're a Christian. You've given your life to him. This is a moment where you join with Christ. And you say, Father, I want to be like you. Forgive me for where I've been, Lord. Help me to be better. Help me to address my shortcomings. You see, Jesus was able to say these words because in a few hours after he said them, he knew he would go to the cross and he would die for us. He would be the perfect sacrifice for all time for the sins of humanity. This effectively was the last Passover that would be that would be uh, celebrated under the omniscience of God. The last time. Because after this, the Passover feast would be forever communion. We would no longer have animal sacrifice. It would be the sacrifice on the cross of the Son of God. That would be the sacrifice. And so when we take communion, we have an understanding of what Christ has done. This is why Jesus could say in John 14, verse 6, No man cometh to the Father except through me. No man cometh to the Father except through me. That's what communion is about, saying, Lord, we honor you. We know your sacrifice. We reflect on it. And we ask you, Father, to take hold of our life, to mold us, to make us better in every possible way. And so let's bow our heads as we open up our communion cups. First, you have the wafer representing the body of Christ. Raise the wafer. Bow your head as we take the body of Christ. Remember the words that he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same manner, take the cup of the juice, raise it, and use the words of Christ Jesus. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Take and drink. Father, I thank you so much that you've allowed us to have this Lord's Supper, to be affiliated with you, to join with your body, to remember what you've done. And I ask you, Father, that you empower us and lift us up, that when we leave this church, that we go out into the world, we can inspire others to recognize what we have done. We stand with you. Help us and conform us to lift us up in every way. Bless our people. Protect them to continue to get together and be a part of the community of God. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.